Hello, welcome to the Sentencing Council podcast, Sentencing Explained. My name is Peter McClellan and I am the chair of the council. This podcast was recorded on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Joining us today is Mr Peter Severin, who for a number of years was the Commissioner for Corrective Services in New South Wales. Peter has a long experience in managing corrective services facilities. He's going to talk to us today about about the impacts of sentences upon offenders and how they are managed both inside jails and also when they return to the community. Good morning, Peter. Morning, Peter, and thanks for having me. Peter, I just mentioned that you were the Commissioner uh, for Corrective Services. For how long were you the Commissioner in New South Wales? Almost nine years. So I started in September 2012 and I retired from the role uh, on the 1st of August um, in 2021. And I assume before that you'd been working in Corrective Services. Can you give us a brief account of your history? My entire time in Corrective Services actually was 41 years. Uh, That says something about my age, I guess. I started my career in Germany, uh, so I'm originally from Germany, but uh, my mother's Australian, so at some stage it was um, a very good move for me to come uh, to my second home country. And uh, I worked in corrections after I finished a degree in social work and then did a training as prison officer, actually, in Germany. Um, and uh, I started that uh, in 1980, and then in 88 I came to Australia, never to work in corrections again, and only to find myself working for Queensland Corrective Services, um, not as a prison officer, but uh, in my um, area of uh, study, which was social work, uh, from the beginning of 1989. And before New South Wales, where were you... Before New South Wales, so I, in, I stayed in Queensland for almost 15 years. I ended up being the deputy of the department up there. And then I was appointed as the commissioner or chief executive, as it's called, in South Australia, where I stayed for over nine years. So yes, I remember you coming from all South Australia. Up, uh, I've been a commissioner for just over 18 years. Now, not everyone probably understands that the role of the commissioner has two significant elements. One is to look after the prisons and the people who are in prison. And the other is to look after people who have been released from prison but are under supervisory orders from courts or the parole board in the community. Now, are those, should we see those two functions as pretty much equally demanding of the Commissioner? I'd say so, even though prisons obviously make it into the headlines a lot more often than community corrections, and uh, that's understandable. Uh, There always seems to be a bit of a mystique around what happens in prisons, but managing people in the community um, is not only a very important part of corrective services, but when you look at numbers, um, uh, the ratio is more than uh, three to one. So we manage three times as many people or supervise three times as many people in the community under some form of order than we have in prison in New South Wales. Now, I think you've been able to extract some numbers for us just looking at the New South Wales system today. And I think as of March this year, well, there was something over 12,000 people in our prisons. Is that about right? That's, that's absolutely right. So, uh, t- to be precise, 12,352, and there's a daily count. Um, that's quite significant because before COVID, the numbers were around about 14,000. So, COVID obviously had some impact on prisoner numbers going down. And uh, uh, I think the analysis as to what contributed to that um, uh, is still uh, being completed. 
Um, out of those uh, numbers, 62.3% uh, are actually sentenced prisoners and 37% are on remand, being pre-trial custody, those that have been remanded in custody awaiting uh, to be tried um, and uh, uh, sent before the courts. So that means, as at March 22, there were more than 4,500 people on remand in the prison system. That's correct. That's correct. Yes. Some of those people, of course, ultimately would be found not guilty Yes, uh, and would be free. That's right. And others would be found guilty and may be sentenced to full-time custody. That's right. So... They can be sentenced to full-time custody. They, uh, in many cases, are sentenced to full-time custody, but the time on remand is taken into account and they're literally discharged very quickly um, because the time on remand is in, seen by the, the, the judge or magistrate as um, sufficient uh, in the context of the offence that they have committed. And others, obviously, are sentenced to longer terms of imprisonment and then go through the prison system. Now, Peter... Can you just give us a short rundown on what happens when someone is sentenced to prison? Um, they go from the court to the prison in the prison van. Certainly do. So they, and then uh, what happens after that? They, um, uh, and this is actually the same for sentenced as it is for unsentenced prisoners. So if you've come to prison for the very first time, you are going through what is called a reception process. So it's a process where... Um, a lot of information is gathered, but we're also uh, some assessments are undertaken to establish that if a prisoner is at risk of uh, suicide of self-harm, for example, if there are any immediate welfare issues that need to be looked after. And at times you have people being arrested now who have a dog at home and nobody to look after them. So the welfare staff uh, then make sure that um, some welfare assistance is provided to look after those immediate risks that somebody might face or immediate needs that somebody might have. The whole focus of this is, is really geared towards making sure that um, a person is safe, making sure that the system has enough information uh, to make decisions in relation to the well-being of a prisoner, but also, of course, to uh, be quite aware of the risk that somebody might be posing to themselves, to others, to the system as a whole. So it's quite complex, um, but it is a very important part of the the, um, the journey that somebody goes through when they first come to prison. So you physically come into the space, you are provided with uh, prison clothes, you can't wear your civilian clothes when you're in prison, you are uh, uh, medically assessed and you are um, also inducted. And induction then includes in providing information that is aimed to ensure that a person's transition from, from liberty into custody is as seamless as, and smooth as possible. And also, now of course, it's a, a part of uh, the person being very anxious and being um, quite frightened at times about what they're facing. So now addressing that and mitigating against uh, uh, sort of those emotions is also very much part of an induction process. Now, obviously, people will be sentenced from different courts in different parts of the state. Uh, are these reception facilities available in all of the prisons throughout the state? They are. Not all of them, but there are hubs. So they are reception hubs. Uh, they are sprinkled throughout the state from the north, which is the prison at Grafton, right down to the south, which is the prison in Juni. Um, and uh, obviously the majority of uh, 
the prisoners come from the, metro, the greater metropolitan Sydney area, and there are a no, number of uh, metropolitan prisons, uh, mainly the Metropolitan Remand and Reception Centre at Silverwater, responsible to receive male prisoners. Female prisoners, uh, because the numbers are a lot lower, um, they have some hubs as well, uh, and again, but at a much smaller scale, but the main one is the um, Metropolitan Women's Prison at uh, Silverwater. Now, I understand that as part of the reception process, uh, the prison system will assess an individual and their level of necessary security. Yep. And I think that's there's a system for all of that. Can you explain that's that? That's correct, to us? yes. Everything in corrections is proceduralized. So if you uh, need to find an answer to anything that uh, is happening, there will no doubt be a procedure that describes exactly what needs to happen. So the classification system is really there to do two things. One is uh, to identify the actual level of supervision that a person requires based on their risk. And we do have some pretty dangerous people that come to custody and to require a very high level of um, uh, of supervision. And then we also have people who might be at risk from others who need a high level of supervision. So the system to uh, go very quickly through it starts with what is largely referred to as maximum security. And there are two levels within that rating, that medium security and minimum security. And minimum security would generally be a classification that a person gets uh, before the sentence expires or before the person uh, is eligible to be um, paroled or apply for parole. Um, and of course, it's all dependent on their behavior and their ongoing um, uh, work and, and uh, engagement with corrective services throughout the term of their imprisonment. So classification is there to internally determine where a person needs to be housed what level of supervision a prisoner needs to be subject to and any other uh, issue that needs to be consider considered, such as the need to be protected, um, the need to not be housed with certain others, um, and also then right through to the um, type of engagement uh, and programs and work and education that a prisoner might want to participate in. Now, you mentioned different levels of classification. Uh, Depending upon your level of classification, uh, do you go then to a different prison to serve your term? That's correct. How does that work? So you might start in a maximum security centre, and let's just um, um, pick one. So if you start, for example, uh, in Kempsey, which is a, called the Mid-North Coast, Mid Coast Correctional Centre, it's a centre of all classifications. It's a hub. So you can be there as a remand prisoner, and while you're on remand, you can only really have a, a very limited uh, graduate sort of classification system. The, the whole system is only available to sentence prisoners for obvious reasons. So you might start as a maximum security prisoner. You might be serving a 10-year sentence, let's say, for example. So you would find yourself on that uh, maximum security um, classification for a period of time and you regularly reassessed. So at the minimum of annual formal reassessment, um, you are looked at and you have uh, you as a prisoner have the opportunity to also put submissions forward um, to the case management team that makes a determination about classification. Um, and 
then if uh, you have met all the requirements of your sentence plan and everything is planned for, you might then be reclassified to minimum uh, to medium security and you might be transferred to a medium security prison uh, or to a different section in this particular case of Mid-North Coast. And what's the difference between a maximum security and, say, a medium security prison? What, yep. it's, what's the experience like? Very restricted in maximum security. So your day is very much um, structured in a way that uh, gives you access uh, outside yourself for about eight hours. You can engage in some work, not all work. So you won't be allowed to work with very dangerous tools, for example. Um, you will not be allowed to access uh, areas in the prison unsupervised. You go to medium security and you will be allowed to work in workshops uh, with um, where you might have to handle more dangerous tools you know, in metal workshops or so. Um, medium security, you will still have a secure perimeter around you, like a fence or a wall. But within that, you, your level of freedom is a bit higher than it was, would be for maximum security. So you can already start uh, engaging in more interaction with others. You can participate in a range of uh, other group activities that are not uh, freely available to maximum security. Minimum security, um, again, has various uh, uh, sort of classifications within it, but the, at the absolute end of that, you would be in a place which might be a farm, and there's no fence, and you're there because you can be trusted and because you uh, actually cooperate with the requirements of the system and you enjoy the freedoms of somebody who literally just lives in a place where they need to stay and you work during the day, uh, you have your leisure time, you don't get locked up in a cell of a night time, you don't have any fences around you anymore, um, and the sort of sort of more restrictive minimum security uh, environment might still have a fence, might still confine people or prisoners to a certain group area uh, overnight and their rooms, um, but during the day they might be able to work unsupervised or very loosely supervised uh, in workshops or in uh, on particular projects. Something I've often wondered about, uh, maximum security or medium security prisons, uh, are they given each given an individual cell or are there multiple offenders in each cell? They're both. So New South Wales had uh, a policy from an infrastructure perspective of a two-third double cell and one-third single cell approach. And that the reason for that is that for many people being confined on your own for a long period of time during during a day um, is actually quite stressful. Now, having a person to share a room with um, is a, an opportunity to have some social interaction, etc. And this thinking goes back quite a while. Um, more and more, the system is now moving towards trying to have single cell accommodation and uh, do it in a way that if you have to, um, you can double it up. So when we built a lot of cells, uh, sort of in my last few years uh, as the commissioner here, we built in some surge capacity, as we called it. So it's not official capacity, but if the system ever experiences growth that is beyond the capacity of the existing cells, there is some surge capacity built in. So the short answer is single cell is, a, is in this day and age the um, preferred option. Um, double cell will always be necessary, but it should be purpose-designed double cell and not just simply a mattress on the floor. However, saying that, in about 2014, 
the system started experiencing exceptional growth in prisoner numbers. The government had to respond by putting a lot of money forward to build new cells. At that time, we had about 70% of uh, single cells in maximum security, um, not by choice, uh, but by necessity doubled up. Now, you mentioned working and metalworking and so on. What sort of programs are there for prisoners? Actually, quite a, a broad range of programs. If I start with education, um, about 70% of prisoners are functionally illiterate. So functional literacy defines itself as having a literacy standard of grade 8. Um, so anything below grade 8 is seen as functional illiteracy. So if you think about it in that way, the real focus has to be on literacy and numeracy because that also enables then prisoners to engage in vocational training, for example, and other forms of, of learning. So the, the education focus is very much on functional literacy and numeracy, um, and in that process uh, prisoners can obtain uh, some uh, like level of competency through a formal system which is actually recognised right around uh, Australia. And that means it uh, without identifying the fact that you've obtained that in a, in a prison. Um, we use the TAFE system basically to do that, or the system does. Um, work, New South Wales actually has got a quite outstanding industry program and it's really recognised, um, uh, certainly in Australia and much further as well. The corrective services industry uh, is trying to emulate real work situations in, in industry in the community. So there are um, internal um, works, so a lot of self-sufficiency is organised through the industries, um, from food production right through to production of any kind of furniture. Everything is built in-house. Um, any kind of machinery that is needed for farming activities, except obviously tractors and things that require a formal certification, etc., is all done in-house. Um, for the prison bed program, for example, the corrective services industry built about 5,000 beds um, and other furniture bits. And in doing that, there is also an opportunity to do traineeships and in some cases even apprenticeships for offenders. So the types of industry um, is uh, very traditional. So it's metalwork, there's uh, carpentry, uh, painting, um, and then the food production, as I mentioned before, all the farms produce uh, or have produce, and that is then used for internal consumption in the first instance. It used to be the case, I think, that hospital uh, linen and so on was yes. uh, laundered in the prison system. Is that right? That is right, yes. Uh, however, sort of competitive neutrality uh, principles, and I don't want to uh, delve into uh, sort of uh, areas of uh, of quite esoteric, esoteric uh, uh, requirements, but we need to compete. We need to be fair to the public sector, to the private sector market in New South Wales. We can't take work away from the private sector. 
and we can't uh, take work away from New South Wales citizens who work in the community. So the program of doing linen for uh, other parts of government like hospitals has really been scaled back because there are commercial laundries out there who want that work and deserve that work. But all the in-house linen uh, is still being uh, looked after by corrective service industry and in some regional areas where there is simply now um, a commercial no provider, no uh, corrective service industries fills that gap. Yep. But it is a very important part of the activity as well. Now, I think also prisoners who need it can also receive uh, specialised professional help yes. uh, in the prison system. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? So the, I've already mentioned welfare. That's uh, sort of the, the basic uh, approach to assisting people who have or prisoners who have a particular requirement. There is uh, clearly a counselling service uh, through uh, programs, officers, so social workers, etc. And then there is a very specialised psychological service. So the psychological service um, uh, is largely focused on forensic psychology, meaning psychology that actually assists uh, prisoners to address their underlying the underlying causes of their offending behaviour, um, but also that deal with issues like mental health and uh, a whole range of other problems that prisoners experience. The psychologists are also very much involved together with the programs officers in running intervention programs to address uh, particular um, risks and needs. So, for example, drug and alcohol programs, programs to uh, deal with um, addiction or other types of addictions, gambling, etc., programs to deal with violence, programs to deal with sexual violence, uh, and uh, that obviously is a, a um, while it is not, not a, a very large number of uh, prisoners who are in custody for sexual violence against uh, women or children, uh, the victimization is, is, of course, very, very high, uh, meaning that the impact on the community and on victims is a lot higher as if somebody steals a bicycle, and I don't want to trivialize this, but really dealing with uh, sexual offenders is a very important part of the rehabilitation for that very high-risk offender group. Um, so there's a whole uh, uh, area of uh, intervention opportunity and Corrective Services New South Wales is not actually developing and inventing all that themselves. They're looking at what is good practice elsewhere in the world, uh, what has been evaluated as being effective and working, delivering the outcomes that are desired. And then we emulate that, um, as every other jurisdiction would do as well. So it's not about us uh, uh, not trying to do something that nobody else has done. It's really about learning what is the most effective way uh, in the context of science, research, evaluation of uh, you know, offering specialised services. And Peter, I think it's fairly common to find that in the background of an offender, particularly in their early years, something went wrong in their upbringing, either a family issue, they were sexually abused yes. or they suffered violence in some way. Uh, are those issues sought out and identified in prisoners? when they come into the system? That's right, yeah. I mean, certainly trauma and uh, uh, the whole sort of life history is very much part of the establishing the baseline and then developing the plan. And you're absolutely right. The level of um, abuse and, and also disadvantage uh, many, many people in prisons have gone through is significant. And uh, without trivialising um, the 
the role of prisons, but really prisons are at the end of the conveyor belt, if you want to look at it uh, that way. Well, and you probably know that the Royal Commission, looking at the sexual abuse of children, talked to prisoners yes. and spoke to more than 700 who came forward to identify themselves as having been abused as children. Yes. But I imagine many prisoners suffer other forms of abuse in their journey through their early lives. Starting from just neglect uh, right through to sexual trauma uh, and anything in between, unfortunately, is part of the experience of many prisoners. Um, And even those that are very dangerous themselves um, and where we may never see uh, an opportunity to do something to change them in the context of their their criminogenic, as it's called, or criminal type of um, uh, risk, um, are the ones that most probably have had some of the worst uh, abuse experiences in their lives. When you add those experiences to, as you mentioned, effective illiteracy, you've, you've got people who are significantly almost disabled in their capacity to function. Yes, and because it, they just simply didn't go to school. Mm. You know, if they went to school, they were sort of sitting at the back, um, sort of mm. painting this a little bit black and white, but mm. they were sitting sort of black off the back of the class and didn't really get the attention mm. uh, that they that they required. And yeah. um, then it, by the time they come to corrective services, you know, they're adults. They're not, yeah. no longer young people. Yeah. Now, obviously, um, people are in jail for committing various offences, uh, do some prisoners offend once they're in, in the prison system? They do. So uh, prisons obviously have, um, unfortunately, also dynamics that are undesirable. Uh, there's tension between prisoners. There are rival gangs that have to be very carefully managed and kept separate from one another. There's tension that that erupts in exercise yards or places where a lot of people are confined during certain periods of the day. Um, and so we do see a, a degree of, of violence amongst prisoners, um, uh, which then needs to be interve- intervened by staff. Um, fortunately, it is not the characteristic of the system. I mean, it's a, it's a, a small part of what you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis being involved with prison management. But uh, it can be very serious. Um, so there have been murders in prison. There have been very serious assaults in prison. There have been sexual assaults in prison um, and uh, that that has to be managed. And if uh, that happens, presumably you report to the police, do you, yes. and, and the police then take up yep. the usual processes and ultimately maybe a trial. That's right. Yeah. So it is dealt with exactly the same way as it would be dealt with in the community. In our case, uh, in the case of the prison system, they obviously also internal consequences. So as a person that's been involved in, in a very serious uh, or even in, in, a, in any kind of, of uh, criminal activity might be isolated from the rest of the population for periods of time. Um, and that's not necessarily punishment. That is really just precaution. Peter, we've been talking generally about the system. Is this, does the system operate in the same way for men and for women? Largely, yes. However, what is really important is to recognise that there are gender-specific needs. And uh, so, for example, the classification system for women is different because women pose different risks to men. Men can pose a very clear physical risk of escape or doing things that 
um, are sort of in breach of very obvious security requirements in a prison. Um, women don't have those risks. And uh, again, without wanting to trivialize um, uh, what is very complex, but largely one can say men are high risk, low needs, and women are low risk, high needs. So women have a lot more needs um, because unfortunately, uh, there's almost no woman in custody who has not gone through some form of trauma in their lives before. Um, and that might be very deep-seated, but it's there, and it's something that can uh, obviously come to the surface and then cause a whole lot of, of very, very um, traumatic experiences. A lot of women are primary caregivers uh, to their children, and they can't have their children with them. So dealing with matters of... Um, now, enhancing the ability of a woman to care for a child, um, dealing with drug and alcohol addiction in a very assertive way, um, having a living environment that is a lot more friendly um, and, and not as, as um, uh, like harsh and secured as a men's environment has to be, are just some of the measures that are different for women. And, of course, the number of women are very small and what the system has to always be very careful about is it's not that uh, just because they're more men it's all done the way the men need it um, and we just simply forget about uh, the, the minority of uh, uh, the women prisoners but that actually we uh, give totally equal weight to the needs and requirements for women as we do for uh, for men and then of course there are other groups uh, in custody who have very specific needs like Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people uh, or First Nations people and um, younger offenders and older offenders who are aged and frail, etc. I was going to ask you about this, but uh, is the prison system set up so that um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are kept in different uh, prisons or are they dispersed throughout the state? How, how is that organised? They're dispersed throughout the state. So there was uh, a, an approach uh, taken about maybe... 15, 20 years ago, where there were specialised Aboriginal uh, prisons um, in Western New South Wales. The problem was they were so isolated that um, uh, only those Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander prisoners who were healthy, who didn't have any medical requirements uh, uh, that required um, no immediate access to nursing care, um, were able to go there. What we also found is they were so far away from where they actually lived, the, the prisoners, that it almost was um, counterproductive because we want, family contact we want well. to you know, make sure that uh, prisoners can maintain mm. family contact, particularly Torres Strait, uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander families. Um, so those places have been closed on and there are very specific programs now run in prisons throughout the state for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. Yes, I've people. seen the program at Bathurst, Yes, which was very impressive. Mm. That was a few years ago I saw that, but I assume that similar programs exist in different jails. That's right. So it's about uh, connecting with culture. Uh, it's about using um, no, culturally appropriate and responsive mechanisms to to get people together, yarning circles and different ways of engaging uh, in talking about things that then hopefully also have a therapeutic effect um, and just being more uh, responsive to the requirements of, of the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander culture. Does the system have particular officers who are responsible for developing and managing the programs for Aboriginal 
offenders? Yes, they are. Uh, but what we also try to do is obviously employ Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people in mainstream roles, uh, now from base grade correctional officer uh, right through to, to general manager, right through to director, um, because it's only when you can actually um, have those values lived and those requirements lift right throughout your organisation that you'll make a difference. But now there are specific, um, and particularly in community corrections, so in uh, the probation parole system, there are um, specific Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander uh, officers employed for uh, the engagement with with uh, offenders, and we also have the same in the in the prison system. And women, how many uh, jails are there in which? We find women prisoners. Um, I need to quickly count in my head. <laughs> there are, so there are uh, two standalone women prisons in New South Wales. One is the Dewinia Women Prison, and the other one is the the Silverwater uh, Prison. The other prisons have got sections for women. So there's uh, Clarence, which is Grafton, Mid North Coast. Um, south coast uh, there's a very small area in Bathurst, there's a very small area in Junee um, and I think that's about all at this point in time and the reason is that um, now having a, a specific, or Wellington has a women's area also in western New South Wales um, so what you want to do is wherever you keep a woman for a longer period of time, not just overnight to attend court. You want to create this environment that actually um, allows a woman to just spend their time in, a, in, a, in an appropriate way in prison. Uh, I forgot Broken Hill has also got a women's sections. Um, so, uh, and in doing that, you want to also make sure that you can offer the whole suite of programs that women, uh, that makes a difference. So that, and that's resource intensive, of course, mm-hmm. you know, spreading yeah. that over yeah. the whole state. Um, so there are uh, sections of, of uh, big prison complexes for women, two dedicated women's prisons that operate in their own right without uh, any other type of person in there. Um, and uh, again, it's going right through the state. It sounds from what you've said that there must be a significant number of psych psychologists and psychiatrists who are involved in helping prisoners, are they all employed by the state or are they private practitioners? So the psychological service is uh, a service uh, where the person is employed by Corrective Service New South Wales. All health services, psychiatric included, uh, are the responsibility of um, a a statute authority under the health department, which is called uh, Justice Health and the Forensic Mental Health Network. So they run the forensic mental health hospitals in uh, New South Wales, mainly the one at Long Bay, and they also provide all health services in every prison except for the private prisons uh, in New South Wales. And that includes psychological, uh, sorry, psychiatric services. They may they may employ a psychiatrist who also has a private practice. Um, and it's a mixed model like we would find in any kind of health system. Um, but the services are available right across the state. Now, Peter, we've been talking about the prison system as such. But as we mentioned earlier on, the other very significant component 
of the Commissioner's work is the supervision of people who've served a prison term and have been released into the community on parole or will come to it or who have been sentenced in some way which does not involve a uh, full-time custody. Uh, but before we get to that, I think that uh, correct, corrections officers are also responsible for preparing assessment reports for judges who are called upon to sentence individuals. Can you just help us to understand what that's all about? So the pre-sentence report service, which is also a service that applies to those that apply for parole, is done by our community correction staff, so by our probation and parole officers. And um, they, are, they look at um, the risk that a person poses. They look at their social circumstances, particularly for pre-sentence. Um, so they, they uh, talk about their family background, they talk about their social environment, they talk about um, you know, education, uh, employability, etc., etc. And it is there to give the judge or magistrate the opportunity to base their decision on penalty um, on the broadest possible uh, scope of knowledge that they can have about an offender. So um, as we know that uh, when you try someone, you have that particular uh, allegation to um, consider. Uh, there are some submissions, of course, made by defence uh, in relation to maybe mental health issues and so on and so forth, but the whole—it's not the whole social picture that uh, that you get through that process. So that's where the pre-sentence report comes into play. Um, likewise, when somebody wants to get out of prison, uh, a parole report similar to the pre-sentence report is completed for the parole authority, which then goes through exactly the same issues now uh, in terms of. Um, um, anything from from the suitability of the accommodation that is proposed right through to the types of programs and interventions a person might still need when he or she is released back into the community. I think you are now a member of the Parole Authority. Yes. Uh, having retired from the position of Commissioner for Corrective Services. Uh, it used to be that um, officers preparing reports for the court or for Parole Authority were called parole officers, but I think that's no longer the title. That's right. What are they called now? They're called community corrections officers because it is um, broader than parole. Uh, and also what uh, we found with the term probation, they used to be called pro uh, probation, probation parole, parole yeah. um, is the term probation, um, politicians seems to change that whenever they do sentencing reform. So um, at the moment is a community supervision order, I think, uh, that used to be the old probation order. So um, community corrections is a all-encompassing term for officers who are responsible to supervise offenders in the community. So that we, we should run through this in sequence. Someone's been sentenced, they go into prison, they serve their term, yeah. and the judge has imposed, let's say, uh, a period of non-parole followed by a period of parole. The decision as to whether or not to be released on parole is made by the parole authority. And as you say, that's made with the help of a report from one of the corrections officers. Uh, and is any other information gathered from the prison system about that person apart from that report? 
Yes, so there is a, uh, if there are any particular psychological or psychiatric issues, there might be specialised reports also required for the parole authority to make that decision. Um, and any other uh, information about their uh, conduct in prison, etc., is also um, uh, considered. You know, in some instances, there are even uh, submissions made by by law enforcement agencies about particular issues that are relevant to their investigations or their work. I think what is also important uh, for the listeners is to understand that there are really um, two types of, sorry, two ways of getting parole. If your sentence is three years or less, you, you get automatic parole, meaning that the parole authority doesn't actually make a decision uh, unless there are very specific circumstances. Um, to release a person. The authority is responsible for anyone uh, serving three years or more, and that's where they actually make the decision to release a person to parole at the time, and they consider that at the time when a person becomes eligible for parole, there's a statutory requirement to do that a certain period beforehand, etc., and of course, the intention, and I doubt the <coughs> series will talk about that, of a sentence is to have a custodial component and a non-custodial component. Because um, if you simply just kick somebody out of prison without a period of time where the person is still subject to some pretty stringent supervision, but also support, you know, the risk is much higher, and we know that. And every statistic that we look at confirms that community corrections or supervision in the community does work. Um, so uh, the authority or uh, would base its decision on a range of inputs, including inputs from the police, so on the authority, and uh, again, you will talk about that uh, elsewhere, um, has got a police officer uh, on, uh, on on the... the um, the group that actually makes the decision, a couple of community members and uh, a community corrections officer. So when the decision is made to allow a prisoner to uh, leave the system and enter parole, uh, I assume they're assigned a corrections officer who will supervise their parole. Can you give us some idea of what that supervision might involve? Okay. So the um, every Every person who gets out on parole is subject to an assessment again. And that assessment does two things. One, it assesses uh, using, again, tools that are um, uh, validated. It assesses the risk of reoffending. Um, uh, but we found some time ago that that in itself is not a very good way of determining supervision requirements. What we also need to do, and that's what the system is doing now, is not only look at the likelihood of reoffending, but look at the impact that any possible reoffending might have. So it's those two components that are uh, assessed: likelihood and impact. And depending on on the outcome of that assessment, um, the assigned officer will see the offender on a maybe bi-weekly basis, right through to only every six weeks. So if you're very low risk and the possible impact of your offending is low, you may only see your parole officer um, uh, in a much less frequent time. If you are very high risk and you require a lot of supervision, you see the person a lot more frequently. 
and you might also be required to engage in a whole range of other programs and services. And what we also need to acknowledge is the um, use of electronics uh, for years now, and it's getting increasingly more used. Um, there are electronic monitoring means around where you don't know what a person is doing, but you know where they are. And so they're required to wear something that... They have to wear an ankle bracelet, basically, <laughs> or an anklet, and that sends a signal through a GPS system uh, that tracks the movement of a person. You can put curfews in, so if you would like to think there's a, a sexual offender who's now back in the community and you want, don't want that person to go anywhere near school, you declare those places being out of bounds. So as soon as the person would walk into one of those uh, out-of-bounds areas, the alarm would go off. Oh, okay. she, and, she goes back with an alarm. And Yeah, yeah, alarm goes off, yeah. not not, a f uh, not one that anybody hears, but no, in the back, back, back at base. Back at base yeah. Yes, of course. And then contact is made with the offender because sometimes it's just inadvertently that something happens. Um, but right through to somebody uh, trying to remove their, yeah. their ankle. Well, how uh, many people now would there be in the community wearing an ankle? Uh, the number is quite high. Um, would be just show a 500 maybe, something like that. So there's someone sitting at a desk somewhere in Sydney somewhere in with Sydney. multiple screens That's right. capable of it's raising an alarm. It's a centre, yeah. yeah. Mm. So it's a, a monitoring centre mm. and uh, we. it's also being used in reverse for domestic violence victims mm. um, where actually the alarm goes off if the offender comes too close to that person. So they obviously don't wear a ankle bracelet, but yeah. they have a little device that they can put in their handbag or, or wear on their belt, um, and that uh, triggers an alarm if the person comes within a certain perimeter. Uh, Does that go back to the same base? Same base, yes. And then what? Police might be notified, uh, yep, or the offender might be called and says, can you please turn around straight away? Yeah. Um, uh, walk in a different direction. And all this has been developed in just recent years? Uh, it's The technology has been around for quite a while, but it's, uh, I'd say, about 25 years or so, mm. but it's getting more sophisticated. Uh, I mean, really, right through to the point where the technology today, it's not being used like that in New South Wales at the moment, but no doubt will be at some stage. It can actually measure if you start drinking alcohol or if you've taken... Really? Drugs, because of the um, your body actually then uh, the sweat and stuff. Uh, uh, yes, so if you start drinking beer and you're not allowed to uh, have, drink, alcohol, have alcohol, an alarm goes the off. alarm goes off. Yeah, yeah. So that's not being used here at this point in time. That, uh, but that is technically totally possible. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's uh, interesting. Um, Peter, can we now look at the different forms? of sentence which can be imposed, uh, which allow per a person to serve their sentence in the community. I think we have now in New South Wales intensive corrections orders, uh, community corrections orders and condition conditional release orders. Now, I think uh, corrective services officers have a role to play in relation to each of those. That's right types of sentence. Can you help us to understand that? So the intensive corrections order um, was legislated uh, quite a while ago, but then it was amended uh, to eliminate what was called at the time suspended sentences, which were literally sentences that courts um, uh, imposed um, and then they were fully suspended, meaning that the person was not subject to any supervision 
didn't have to go to prison unless they re-offended, in which case they would have had to go back to prison uh, or, or to prison to serve that suspended sentence. And it was a matter dealt with by the courts. So instead of um, uh, having a suspended sentence, which um, was seen by the government of the day as being a not very effective um, uh, intervention uh, and not really being as effective in the response to crime, uh, the it, then intensive corrections orders were amended and um, courts can now impose a intensive corrections order instead of a suspended sentence, meaning again that the person is not uh, uh, required to go to prison, but is subject to supervision by corrective services through orders, through conditions that are imposed by the courts. And they can be fairly strict conditions. They can be very strict conditions. There can be curfews. There can be how. There can even be uh, electronic monitoring. Uh, obviously, there can be uh, conditions that prevent a person from uh, consuming alcohol or drugs. Uh, and it can include detention in the home. It can, absolutely, yeah. yes. Uh, so curfews. So yeah. it can mean that you're not allowed to leave your home between the hours of X and Y. Um, it, can, it obviously can also have requirements to undergo certain assessments and be involved in treatment. Um, it can involve uh, the a requirement uh, to stay away from any victim that uh, uh, you might have had in the past. So it's a whole catalogue of... And corrective services officers supervise. monitor and supervise. That's, right. That's correct. That person's behaviour. That's correct, yes. And if that person doesn't do what they're supposed to do, what can happen? Um, if it's a minor infringement, it's a warning from the community corrections officer. That warning can be a, an informal warning or a formal warning. Ultimately, uh, it's report back to the parole authority, who's the authority instead of the courts now, uh, to then make decisions on possibly revoking the intensive corrections order, in which case the person has to go to prison. Um, so on the authority, where, when I'm part of the, the meetings, um, we have cases where a person has reoffended, or where a person has uh, committed very serious infringements on the conditions of their order. Um, they fail to report regularly. They uh, have moved uh, place of residence without uh, permission. Um, they have, uh, in any other way, breached the conditions of their order, in which case the authority then can revoke the uh, corrections order. They can reinstate it um, after a period of time, which they do at times, and um, so it's a dynamic instrument of control. The community corrections order is a lower um, uh, ranked order in terms of the restrictions. It's a bit like a classification system almost. So you're not subject to the same level of, of restriction that you might be under uh, an intensive corrections order. But nevertheless, the community corrections staff still supervise a person on a community corrections order for the period of um, of the order. When you say they're not as strict or the conditions aren't as strict, can you just give us some illustrations? Yes, for example, might... on a community corrections order, you would not have an electronic monitoring uh, requirement. You um, might still have uh, prohibitions um, uh, as additional conditions. Um, you would also find that the person on such an order may not have the same level of need in the context of uh, drug and alcohol dependency or uh, significant gambling problems or other things. Um, so it's more about making sure that they comply 
um, with the requirements while they're in the community, get some supports as re as necessary, but in a in a far less intense way to the intensive corrections order. And then the um, the community um, uh, release orders are sorry. really the old probation orders. So they conditional release orders. Conditional, yeah. sorry, conditional yeah. release orders are uh, imposed by the courts, and uh, as is the community corrections order. But the conditional release order is really the replacement of the what traditionally was the or called the probation order, where you um, were conditionally released for uh, well, placed in the community on an order that was subject to um, to uh, some level of supervision. In case of a breach, the court is responsible, not the parole authority. So the conditions on a conditional release order, can they be as severe as a community corrections order? Uh, um, they would generally not be, but there can be certainly uh, conditions uh, of having to participate in certain rehabilitation programs. Um, there could be conditions that relate to uh, not associating with um, co-offenders. Um, you could restrict somebody from accessing certain parts of uh, the town, the city, for example, so the exclusion zones. Now, if we know that a victim lives in a particular local government area, uh, the court may then impose, and that's would be done on the recommendation, or not recommendation, but on the assessment through the pre-sentence report. Through the corrections officer That's right, again. yeah. And you're saying conditional release orders, if there's a breach, it goes back to the court. The court. And the court may or may not decide to impose a full-time custody. That's correct. Sentence. What about serious breaches of extensive correction orders? Serious breaches of those orders, can that uh, end up with the person... Uh, Yes. Placed into full-time custody. Absolutely. So the parole authority is the authority dealing with that. And um, uh, if they are revoked, they the person has to go into custody and serve the time uh, on their order. The parole authority has the ability to let somebody out earlier. So sometimes um, what the parole authority has been doing is send somebody back to prison for a period of time, like a few months, um, just to say, hey, uh, now, be aware that now you are uh, treading on very thin You're ice. In jeopardy, yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. you know? uh, and, um, uh, of course, the parole authority also uh, has the ability and or the offender has the ability to, uh, now, if the parole authority revokes an order, uh, to, for want of better words, appeal that, in which case it goes to an open session, which um, one of the judges presides over and the members are there, and the uh, offender could be legally represented, um, participates via video conferencing, and has a direct engagement with the authority through that way. Peter, how many corrections officers are there in New South Wales? The number is obviously fluctuating, but uh, there would be in excess of 6,000, plus about uh, another sort of two and a half, three thousand community corrections officers. Um, so you're looking at a sizable organisation. About 10,000. Yes. When I left, people. we had 10,800, and that was uh, at the time where all the corporate services and a lot of policy work was actually done by the department. So they're... Uh, separate from the... Separate. Mm. Now, we previously, um, before the department became a, a sort of a mega department, mm. all of those services were provided in-house from when corrective service was standalone until 2009, or actually it was later than that. 
Um, so, yes, it's a sizable organisation. And is that 10,800 include the psychologists, yes. the psychiatrists? Yes, not the psychiatrists. They are part of Justice Health. Right. But the corrective services psychologists would be part of that, yes. Psychologists, which includes the counsellors and yes, that's those, right. yes. those in, endeavouring to help prisoners yep. to come to terms with their position in life. Yep. Peter, uh, thank you for joining us this morning. I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast will find what you've had to say very interesting indeed. Uh, the prison system, as you rightly pointed out, is a bit of a mystery to most people. And hopefully we can have lifted some of that mist this morning. Thank you. And I always like to say, and that was certainly my philosophy, that we are not out of sight, out of mind. Now, the fact that uh, institutions have walls around them and razor tape uh, should not mean that they're not accountable and open for the community to know exactly what's happening. So I always appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit about it. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. You have been listening to Mr Peter Severin, who is the New South Wales Commissioner for Corrective Services. This podcast, Sentencing Explained, is brought to you by the New South Wales Sentencing Council. The teacher's guide to the podcast and further information about the council is available on the Sentencing Council's website. I'm Peter McClellan. Thank you for listening.